Joel. Well, the last time that I spoke out of Joel, we looked at some of the principles concerning how God judges nations and also began to examine this phrase that comes up often in Joel, the day of the Lord. We pointed out that in Joel, this phrase speaks mainly of judgment, and that's normally what we think of, but it can also involve deliverance of God's people, God's repentant people. We also noted that this day of the Lord had a partial fulfillment in times near to Joel's pronouncements. Now, I've taken the position that the date is probably the 6th century B.C., which means if that's the case, we, you can't nail that down for sure, but if that is the case, then one of the judgments that was soon to come upon Judah was the Babylonian captivity, where the Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple, carried the people captive. But then the deliverance was the 70 years later when God allowed the people to return back to the land and uh, rebuild the temple. So uh, that's one of the possible fulfillments of what we're reading here in Joel related to the judgment and deliverance. But there are many other possible partial fulfillments. But we also said that when we think of the day of the Lord, we should consider the fact that it, it's speaking of a final future fulfillment, which was yet to come for Joel, and it's still yet to come for us. Uh, we pointed out that it was important to remember that often final consummation language, things like the sun and moon going dark and uh, clouds and blood and fire and columns of smoke and earthquakes and that type of thing, um, is used to characterize future judgments, not just... Uh, not just one example of that at the end times, but often near future judgments, near to the time that Joel was speaking, but uh, also the final future judgment. And this is because all judgments in time are images or types or precursors of the great cataclysmic judgment that will come at the end of the age. So you have that same type of language used for partial fulfillments of this area of judgment and then the final future fulfillment. We'll look at that more next time. So uh, just as a little summary here, where have we come so far in our study of Joel? We've seen his vision of the things that were nearest to him, his present circumstances, which included an, act, an actual plague of locusts and a drought. That's chapter 1. He gives his prophecy in light of the terrible destruction that was upon them right then. But then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he, go, he then goes on to speak of a more serious, imminent threat to the people, a greater judgment from God, which was a coming mighty army, but he still uses the illustration, the imagery of a locust plague to illustrate how devastating this coming judgment would be. So that, again, is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So in light of this present crisis and the impending greater judgment, Joel then calls the people to repentance. He calls them to come together to cry out to God for mercy and for deliverance. That's chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 
And then finally, he speaks of things beyond his own day, sometimes far beyond his own day, when God would bring great deliverance and salvation, which is really basically the remainder of the book. And that's the part that we want to look at, at least part of that part of the great deliverance and salvation that is there for God's repentant people. That's what we want to look at today. We're going to read through Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 32. And again, I'm going to have Jim Kelly come up and read this section. Joel chapter 2, 18 through 32. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floor will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army which I have sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame." Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, Even the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. 
Well, this section then that we're looking at deals with the future deliverance of God's repentant people. The invaders, whether they be locusts or human armies, will be removed and defeated. You see that in verse 20. The land, the vegetation, and the animals will be restored, verses 22 to 25. And the people will be wondrously blessed, never again to be put to shame. You see that in verse 19. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and you will never again... And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. You see it in verse 25 and 26 where he talks about making up to you for the years that the locusts have taken. I'll make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And just wonderful promises here of the blessed state of God's people in the future. Um, And then best of all in these promises of deliverance is that God will be in the midst of his people. You see that in verse 27. And thus you will know that I am the Lord in the midst of Israel. I am in the midst of Israel. And I am the Lord your God. And there will be no, and there is no other. And my people will never again be put to shame. So, promises related to the great deliverance that uh, God has for his people. But perhaps the most amazing aspect of the deliverance that Joel speaks of is in the future this future dawning of a age of supernatural blessing when God will pour out his spirit upon not just upon Israel but upon all mankind i mean this is part of the this wonderful promise of deliverance for God's repentant people the promise of his holy spirit to be poured out Uh, And so I just want to focus in on that today. We're not going to try to go, and we haven't been trying to go verse by verse through Joel. I'm I'm trying to pick out sections to bring home what I think are the the significant aspects of what Joel's saying and and also just to point out why I take the position I do on Joel in terms of why we interpret it the way we do. So, anyway, I want to focus in on this section from verses 28 through 32. Now, I said before that we don't know, we can't date for sure the prophecy of Joel. Uh, But we can precisely date the beginning of this new age that he's talking about, this age of the Spirit. Uh, We can do that because we're, we're told in the New Testament of how this was fulfilled. In the book of Acts, Peter says that the events on the day of Pentecost, and this is what he says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So he, he goes back to this section here. He says, what you're seeing happening there on the day of Pentecost this outpouring of the Spirit, these people speaking in tongues concerning the the mighty deeds of God, this is what Joel was talking about. So we can precisely date the beginning of what Joel was prophesying here as far as the great deliverance for God's people. I think it is interesting that in the Hebrew Scriptures, this section from 28 to 32 
is actually made a separate chapter. They have four chapters of Joel instead of just three, and they set this section off. So somehow those uh, scribes realize this is a special section here. And, of course, Peter then says, yeah, it's really special. Um, This is what uh, is happening here on the day of Pentecost. Joel saw this amazing and wonderful age in the distance. But Peter says that this is what's happening now, and even more than that, we're actually privileged to live in this age that's being talked about by Joel back here, way back in the Old Testament. An age in which God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh, not merely upon Israel. Pouring forth his Spirit not merely upon kings or princes or priests, but upon bond slaves. Not merely upon elders, but upon young men and women who will prophesy and dream dreams and see visions. An age in which all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Even before Joel, way back in the time of Moses, he desired this very type of thing. He said, would that all the Lord's people would be pro- were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. That's back in Numbers eleven twenty nine. You might want to look at that sometime. So Joel, or, uh, Moses said, I wish God would pour out his spirit upon everybody. And Joel's saying that's exactly what he's going to do. But I doubt if Moses realized the implications of what he's saying. And I don't think Joel really understood the radical nature of what he was prophesying. I say this because what Joel predicted involved the doing away with the old covenant system that he lived under. It was doing away with that old system and the dawning of a new age with a new covenant. It was an age of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. As Ezekiel says, God says in Ezekiel, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is a whole new arrangement. We should always remember that because of the life death, and resurrection of Christ, two tremendous things took place in the first century. First, the whole Old Covenant system involving temple, sacrifices, priesthood, was made obsolete and was soon to disappear. That's what happened when the Romans came in in 70 AD and destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple. Jesus had prophesied that. He said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. You're looking at the temple. Isn't this a wonderful place? Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. He said, he said to the Jewish people, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus had prophesied this, and that's exactly what happened. So two tremendous things happened there in the first century. The doing away of that old, system, that old covenant system. Secondly, in that same time period, a new covenant was inaugurated, was begun, which included this tremendous promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on both Jew and Gentile believers. A new covenant, this new covenant, is a spirit-empowered covenant 
for all who are in Christ. And we're, we're privileged to be part of that. To bring home how radical this change between the old and new covenant is, I just want us to consider these comparisons. Just go through these quickly. I won't give the references for them. The old covenant was for one nation, Israel. The new covenant is for all nations, including the Jewish nation. The new covenant. The old covenant with Israel included many who were not regenerate. They were just part of this nation. The new covenant is for a regenerate people. It's made up of people who God's spirit has worked in, you see. They're regenerated by the spirit of God. The old covenant was written in stone or in ink. The new covenant is written by the Holy Spirit on the heart. The old covenant had Moses as the lawgiver. The new covenant has Christ as the lawgiver. The old covenant was centered on the law of Moses. The new covenant is centered on the law of Christ. The old covenant was a, had a fleshly circumcision. The new covenant has a circumcision of the heart. The Old Covenant had an earthly tabernacle. The New Covenant has a heavenly tabernacle. The Old Covenant had many temporary priests. The New Covenant has Christ, the one eternal high priest. The Old Covenant had frequent sacrifices for sin. The New Covenant has one sacrifice for sin forever. The Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, sin is remembered often. Bring that lamb every year or every time. Uh, goat or, or uh, bull, bring them in over and over. In the new covenant, sin is remembered no more. The old covenant left people imperfect. The new covenant makes people perfect. The old covenant said, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the law. The new covenant says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The Old Covenant brought condemnation. The New Covenant brings justification. The Old Covenant brings bondage. The New Covenant brings liberty. The Old Covenant was a shadow. The New Covenant is the reality. The Old Covenant was fulfilled in Christ. The New Covenant is now enforced by the Holy Spirit. It's enforced by the Holy Spirit and enforced by the Holy Spirit. The Old Covenant has become obsolete and was designed to disappear. Designed obsolescence, I think they call that. It was designed that way. It was made to be done with. The New Covenant will last forever. So I say all that to say, what a privilege you and I have to live in this age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this time when the New Covenant has begun. So I said in the first message, I think I said in the first message, that we would get into some controversial areas as we go through this book of Joel. And I encourage us all to search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. So some of the things I'm going to say today may be different than what you've heard just search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Actually, I've already said some controversial things, but I just didn't point them out. <laughs> I'm going to point them out today. 
So as we go through dealing with this section concerning the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I think we must point out some of the areas of disagreement amongst evangelical Christians. And I, I would just say that to begin with. Even though I disagree with some of uh, the things that are being said uh, related to what we're looking at today, uh, that doesn't mean these people aren't Christians. There's good men that will teach something different than what I'm teaching today. Well, I believe if we would rightly interpret the verses we're looking at today and the remainder of the book, we must embrace the reality of what is sometimes called spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel. These verses from 18 onward, though they may have had a partial fulfillment at various times under the Old Covenant, find their fuller fulfillment and their final fulfillment in the New Covenant people of God which includes both Jew and Gentile. That's the spiritual Israel I'm talking about. Today, much of evangelical Christianity would disagree with what I'm presenting. I mean, if basically, if you listen to Christian radio, there's a lot of good teaching on there, but I would guess about three-fourths of what's being presented would say that this idea of spiritual Israel is not uh, scriptural. Those who hold a dispensational view of the Bible are very much against that idea of a spiritual Israel. They believe we must take the promises to Israel in a very literal way or we are not really believing the Bible. They believe this is a matter of uh, believing what God said about the Jewish people. And if you don't, take those things literally, you're not really believing the Bible. So it's a very strong uh, point for them, and uh, actually it's a pretty strong accusation against what I'm presenting. I'm not really believing the Bible. So again, I'm, I, I, as I present these things, search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. That's all I'm asking of you. Uh, In dispensational theology, God's dealing with Israel, his dealings with Israel are always to be separated from his dealings with the church. Now that's one of the big points. God's basically got two people, the Jewish people and the church. As one writer put it, in dispensation in the dispensational view, God has two distinct people, the church and ethnic Israel. Two distinct people with two distinct plans and two distinct destinies. Part of that distinct plan for ethnic Israel in the dispensational view is supposedly a rebuilt temple. They don't have a temple right now, the Jewish people in Israel. A rebuilt temple with reinstituted a reinstituted sacrificial system and all that will take place when Christ comes again to rule in Jerusalem, on a throne in Jerusalem, for a thousand years. They say this is what the Old Testament teaches, so this is what we must believe. God supposedly has a different plan for the church. 
it's to be raptured off the earth before all this stuff about the rebuilt temple and the sacrificial system and Christ ruling in Jerusalem takes place. Church is raptured off the earth at what they call a secret coming of Christ. Christ comes partway, takes the church off, and uh, then there's tribulation for seven years. Christ comes again. Battle of Armageddon sets up a millennium. Well, that's all because they feel like uh, if you take the Bible literally, you have to believe that. What I'm saying and what I believe the Bible presents is that God has one plan for all humanity, which is the new covenant in Christ's blood, and that the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of Israel to Israel is found in Christ and his new covenant people. That's where we should be emphasizing. That's what we should be emphasizing. The Holy Land, the Holy City, the Holy Temple were merely types and shadows of the reality that's found in Christ. And we don't go back to the shadows. We go forward into the reality. More and more that should be our desire, not to go back to something that God's already said is obsolete. The Old Covenant shadows find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his New Covenant people. This would include the Jews, the Jewish people that recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and also the Gentiles who put their faith in Christ. God has from all eternity purpose to have one flock with one shepherd through the blood of the eternal covenant. He's not purposing to keep these two groups separate. He's purposed and is right now bringing them together. One flock with one shepherd. That's John 10:16, And it's through the blood of the eternal covenant. Hebrews 13:20. With the coming of the new covenant and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God's covenant community is now clearly seen to be all who are in Christ. God's covenant community are all who are in Christ. As Paul says in the Galatians chapter 3, verses 28-29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And here's a really significant thing. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Abraham's seed, the true Jew, are all who belong to Christ. He says that you can't say it any clearer. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. Abraham's the, the father of the Jewish nation. But if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. Because we now live in a time after after the inauguration of the new covenant and after the coming of God's spirit upon all flesh, it's proper to read some of those Old Testament verses about Jerusalem and Judah and Israel and Zion as applying to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. He says, we are the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
and he says that in light of the fact of how what was happening to the Jewish people is for our instruction. It's for us to understand uh, in this age of the outpouring of the Spirit. We're part of the great, uh, this kind of putting it in contemporary terms, but we are part of the great cosmic end game that the whole Old Testament was pointing forward to. What is that? It's the summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up of all things in Christ. We should not be focusing on secular Israel, the Jewish state, Israel according to the flesh, as we seek to understand these prophecies in Joel, how they were fulfilled. Yes, there is partial fulfillment to ethnic, ethnic Israel, but the total, the great, the final fulfillment has to do with those who are the true seed of Abraham, those who are in Christ. <clears throat> Let's turn to, to Romans chapter 10. Normally when we think of... Uh, Joel and what's uh, talked about in the New Testament concerning this section of Joel. We think of uh, Pentecost, but but uh, Paul saw other things here, and so just want to I just want to point out one other portion that he uses related to the New Testament church. Uh, Romans chapter ten and verse twelve. He's talking about that it's by faith that we're saved and uh, the importance of trusting Christ. But in in verse uh, 12, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. And then he quotes Joel. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's just another way of saying that those who call upon the Lord are the true Jews. This is the true Israel, those who call upon the Lord. And those are people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, including the Jewish nation. As the New Testament says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And again, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Do you see that? He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart by the spirit, not by letter. Again, this is what we're talking about when we speak of spiritual Israel. True Israel the true Israel's God is not based on race, but on spiritual relationship. 
not based on race. It's based on spiritual relationship. It's not based on nationality. It's based on spirituality. Where the spirit has worked in the heart, that's where the true Israel is. Actually, the Israel that pleases God, that is right with him, has always been spiritual Israel. Most of that ethnic Israel was not pleasing to God. He was not pleased with them. Paul says this type of thing over and over again. I don't see how we should miss it. It should be clear in our thinking. Let me just give one more example from Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, This is the true Jew. This is the true circumcision. I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to bring it home as strongly as I can. God's people are those who worship in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has come upon them. They've, changed. They've been changed in their heart. They're new creatures in Christ. God's people are those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. They don't glory in their ethnic background. They glory in Christ Jesus. In fact, they put no confidence in the flesh. They put no confidence in what my background is, my ethnic background, what my race or any of that has to do. He said no confidence in that. God's people put no confidence in the flesh, which includes putting confidence in their ethnic background like being a Jew according to the flesh. Once we get a hold of that truth and really understand what Paul in the New Testament is saying, it makes a big difference in how you interpret most of this latter part of Joel. Though there are surely many limited fulfillments of these promises of deliverance for the Jewish people, the ultimate fulfillment has to do with all of God's people who are in Christ. All true Jews. this, This is for us what we're reading here. When he says he'll make up for the years that the locusts have taken, you can take a hold of that. That's for you. The interpretation of Scripture I'm presenting here is sometimes stigmatized as replacement theology. The idea being that the church replaces Israel, but that's a misnomer. A better, more accurate name might be fulfillment theology. The church is the fulfillment of all this that's written in the Old Testament. Christ and and his people, the church, are a fulfillment of this. Christ and his new covenant people fulfill the law and the prophets. All the prophecies, promises, and precepts find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ and his people, which includes Jews and Gentiles. God is not intending to keep these groups separate. The New Testament clearly reveals the universal scope of God's redemptive plan. So, let me put it in a nutshell. God's Israel is now all believers in the Messiah. 
That's God's Israel. All believers in the Messiah. Abraham's seed is now Christ and all who are in him. The promises related to the land in the Old Testament now involve the whole earth, which Christ's humble ones will inherit. Promises related to Jerusalem now relate to the Jerusalem from above, the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, which is all believers. The temple is now Christ, and through him the church and individual believers. The priesthood is now expanded by Christ, our great high priest, to include every believer in him, so that now both Jew and Gentile can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. The enemies of God's people are no longer just the nation surrounding physical Israel. They are now all unbelieving people who reject or oppose the glorious gospel of Christ. The great battle that God's people are involved in is not centered on a piece of real estate in the Middle East. It's a worldwide battle. The defeat of God's enemies is now more than the earthly destruction of physical armies. It involves eternal separation from God's presence. God's ultimate purpose of fellowship with his image bearers and harmony in his creation is not limited to any particular ethnic people or place. It is realized in God's presence with his people all over the earth. This is God's presence with his people. As we talk about here, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. God's presence with his people is a reality now through the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the world and will be brought to perfection when Christ comes again and establishes the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells forever. The New Testament, I say again, the New Testament scripture clearly reveals the universal scope of God's redemptive plan, which includes Jew and Gentile, being brought together in one flock with one shepherd. So, God's aiming at this. He's bringing it about now through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that bringing of Uh, the Jew and Gentile together into one worshiping community, the New Covenant community in Christ, and that, that will be brought to perfection when Christ comes again and establishes the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and Jew and Gentile, that distinction is totally gone. They're not going to be walking around, oh, that guy's a Jew and this is a Gentile. I'm going to do that in the new heavens and new earth. Then God's people, to use Joel's words, when Christ comes again, establishes the new heavens and new earth, God's people will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of their God who has dealt wondrously with them. They will never again be put to shame. They will know that the Lord is in the midst of Israel. Then Judah will be inhabited forever. 
and Jerusalem for all generations, and God will dwell in Zion. That, we haven't got to that part yet, but that's at the end of chapter 3. This is the, this is the true fulfillment of what we read in Joel. I'm trying to get us to think in terms uh, not so literal in, as we read through this and thinking more spiritually, more in terms of God's true fulfillment of these verses. Well, we should be thanking God every day for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's bringing his sheep together into one flock and uh, realize how wonderful what he is doing and will do, what he's doing for, for us as Christians He's bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and that includes the Jewish nation. Don't think of separation. Think of uh, incorporation and and community into one. Well, like I said, uh, these are issues in contemporary Christianity, and I'm not saying that people that hold a dispensational view uh, are not Christians. There's some very fine people and good teachers that you'll listen to uh, that are presenting the gospel in the midst of holding these dispensational views. But I do think they're wrong. We'll go on from there next time. And I encourage you to keep reading in in Joel with the mindset that I've tried to present here today. See, I'm trying to, you might say, well, why don't you just tell me what the verses mean? And then then I'll know. I want to tell you why I think these verses mean this, so that you can see it yourself, not just somebody says, well, why don't you believe dispensationalism? Well, my pastor doesn't. Not good enough. 